Clear memories of Mrs. Landalt's first grade classroom, sitting on the floor in a big circle, playing the game where whoever's got the ball is the one allowed to talk. She'd call out questions that you were supposed to answer, right? What's your favorite color? Red, blue, green. What's your favorite shape? Triangle, circle. We'd run out very quick on that one. What do you want to be when you grow up? Astronaut, firefighter, priest. Ooh, ooh, didn't mean to say that. So, so after I tossed the ball, I motioned for my buddy across the, the way to throw it back, and I said, astronaut too. <laughs> I came up with two or three other things. There was something in me, it wasn't that I was embarrassed that I was thinking of priesthood. It was too little, I think, to be embarrassed of anything. But that got that, like, that was a different kind of question. See, when we say, uh, uh, what, what do you want to be when you grow up to a kid, what we're really asking is, what kind of job do you want to do? How do you want to spend your time working, right? When, when, when you say, I, I want to be a priest, this is something much more like saying, I want to be a dad. I want to be a mom. I want to be a husband. Or I want to be a wife. Who's ever asked a kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they said, an uncle. <laughs> it's, it's the wrong kind of question, right? There's a distinction in the Christian life between vocation and occupation, between that which has kind of a fundamental claim on us and our powers and our energies, that which stabilizes our relationship in the church, and, and that by which we earn our daily bread and spend our time. It's not that they're unrelated, obviously. 
There's a vocational quality to every kind of work. I mean, if you, were, if you couldn't sing and you couldn't play music, probably don't try and be a professional musician, right? But, but there is something more fundamental about our vocation than about our occupation. And that's important, especially given the way that the Lord speaks today about labor. Who among you would say to your servant who's just come in from plowing or tending the sheep in the field, come here immediately and take your place at the table? Would he not rather say to him, prepare something for me to eat, put on your apron and wait on me while I eat and drink? You may eat and drink when I am finished. Is he grateful to that servant because he did what was commanded? No, is the answer. He's not grateful that the guy did what he was hired to do. That's just what hiring somebody to do is for. See, occupations, work, labor, those are concerned with justice. Vocations, those are always a matter of mercy. Justice, of course, relates to us in society. That's why we invented the language of social justice. Now, I know that makes some people allergic at this point. I'm not talking about whatever you've heard on some news channel. I'm talking about the way the church has developed its own social teaching to govern the way that we relate to each other. And this is especially important in society, especially a capitalist society, relative to labor and capital. The people who have the jobs and the people who own the companies that employ the people. It's the reason that the church historically has supported the unions. Not because every union is infallible or uncorrupt. Not because there are no thugs among the bosses. We know there are. But you can only recognize an abuse if you know already what the thing is supposed to be doing. That is, if there's a right use for the thing, right? Nobody ever talks about, I don't know, like, like um, weapons abuse. Weapons are already meant to be used against people. That's the point of them, right? So, so the fact that the unions don't always do what they're supposed to do doesn't mean there shouldn't be some sort of mechanism for labor, that is, for employees to have redress against those who have power over them. It's also the reason that the church insists insists on justice for the workers. Justice here is important because justice consists in what someone is due, not just what it would be nice to do for them if we managed to do so. So I'm going to use a real concrete example from our own lives here at Christ the King and in the wider church. I've been teeing us up for this capital campaign for the last several weeks. The diocese has been busy about it since last January. And there are three kind of buckets for the money of the capital campaign to go into. The schools, priest retirement, and seminary education. Seminary education has become important because it turns out that when you have happy priests that are happy being priests and invite guys to the priesthood, um, they come. So, 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 so men like Father John have worked for decades to help inspire younger men like me and younger men so like Father Stark. And now, frankly, we have so many guys in seminary, we can't afford them all. So we need more money to be able to educate our future priests. Priest retirement is important because, well, Father John. <laughs> but the school's piece is important for this reason, and it relates directly to this question of labor. Most of the teachers serving in the diocese are being paid 
at between 60 and 65% of what their counterparts are getting at a public school. Now you might say, well, the public school people are overpaid. I'll let you say that. I'm not going to get in the middle of that. You might say, well, Father, we signed up for this. Like, like people that teach in a Catholic school know they're not going to be paid market. Why? I mean, like, of course, when, we, when the nuns first left and we had to hire lay people for the first time, we had to create a system that way. We were in a pinch. But why would you design a system that, that's purpose is to not pay people a just wage? Especially when you're the people preaching to everybody else about paying a just wage. So this schools thing, this capital campaign, it's not like an option that we should do if, if we're able to. It's not like, wouldn't it be nice if we finally had enough money to pay people what they're actually worth? It's a question of justice. But put it plainly, the scriptures are very clear. Employers who exploit their workers go to hell. I don't want to go to hell. So I would like to pay my teachers what they're worth. You follow? Okay. This is important, and it is meant to prickle you a little bit because some of you own businesses, and you probably don't all pay what you're supposed to. Most of us who employ people have experienced in the last year and a half that following the reopen after COVID, it's harder to get people back to work. Now, maybe some of that's because, uh, I don't know, uh, millennials and Gen Zers not wanting to work enough. that, That seems to be some people's experience. That's not been my experience, but if it's yours, great. Rattle on your grandkids. The, 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 the thing that I'm concerned with is that maybe the reason they don't want to come to work is because we give them really awful jobs to do and don't pay them enough to start off with. Or that we create structures around those jobs that ensure that some people on top are getting paid way more than they ever should and a whole bunch of people at the bottom can't ever work their way back up. Make no mistake, we helped create this system And so it's our responsibility to help fix it. Because it would be a nice thing to do? No. Because we'll go to hell if we don't. Because we'll go to hell if we don't. If we have the opportunity to redress a wrong and we go, eh, I don't have the bandwidth, that's on us, not on somebody else. Now, what does this look like concretely? Well, obviously, if you own a business, you need to do your best to pay your people a living wage. If you work for a business and you feel like you're not being treated fairly, uh, you need to figure out how to best redress that. If you're not unioned, then uh, together with the other workers there, depending on your boss, all those kinds of things. Come talk to me. We'll strategize. I've got people who can work with you on things like that. I have several times, most of you don't know this, but, but people at the 315 know, I have several times just like burst into bosses' offices at hotels or restaurants around town to talk about how they're treating their workers. I'm not very popular with a lot of people's bosses, but I do often get them paid better. Now, I'm not saying that to toot my horn. I have worked since coming here at Christ the King to help raise both our teachers and and other staff members' salaries, but we're not where I want to be. We're not close to where I want to be. And you know whose salary is not changing at all in this? Mine. Right? So this isn't trying to level everybody up. I'm recognizing that at the top of the organization, I don't need to be paid the most. And frankly, since I'm a celibate and I have a house that they put me up in, I probably should be paid one of the least. 
That's deliberate. It's Christian. Well, it's, I'm an unprofitable servant. I've simply done what I was asked to do. On the level of vocation, we step into a different place. Vocation, as I said, is not about justice, it's about mercy. And here's how I know. Those of you that are married and have your spouse next to you, just look at them for a minute. You can blush a little, it's okay. Do you deserve them? No. No. Now, you might say some days, I don't deserve this. Fair. (laughs) But you didn't marry them for that reason, right? You married them, you fell in love with them because you recognized you were leveling up. You got something here you didn't rightly deserve. You can't claim injustice the right to be loved like that. That can only come as gift. If it came by way of justice, it would not be love at all. Vocation operates on the level of mercy because it is a gift from the God who loves you and wants to draw you to himself. Vocation operates on the level of mercy because this is the way that God wants to save you. A vocation isn't just a convenient way to spend your life or the way that the church organizes things socially or something like that. This is the particular way in the particular place that God chooses to save your soul. There's no such thing as a generic vocation. You're not married in general. You're only married to him or to her. And only one of those at a time, remember. (laughs) Sister is not a generic nun. She's not a generic sister, right? There's no such thing as generic religious life. She belongs to a particular community with houses in particular places. She serves particular people in Germany. I'm not a priest at large. (laughs) I'm pastor of a particular place in a particular diocese. I belong to this particular church, right? Vocations are always particular. And that's good news for us because it means that the way that God chooses to save us is, is, is ordered, is organized, is developed according to our own capacities and our own needs. God knows us better than we know ourselves. God's vision that the prophet Habakkuk prophesies at the beginning, right? right? The vision is still alive. The vision still has its time. Life, for some of us, might not be in a great place right now. That doesn't mean that God's dream for you has died. That doesn't mean that God's plans for you have been forgotten. You've messed up your life by addiction or cycles of bad relationship. You don't have a job or you really hate the job you have. You're not getting paid enough and you're not about to go talk to the priest about that because you're afraid it will happen. Fine. God hasn't given up on you. So there's no reason you should give up on him. St. Paul wrote that passage from the second reading while in prison. While in prison, he writes to Timothy, not in prison, I didn't ordain you to be a chicken to be cowardly. I ordained you to be better than this. This is a bishop calling a priest to account. I ordained you to be better than this. You can do it. I know you can do it, which is why I laid hands on you. But son, you've got to be braver than you are right now. Friends, each of us, whatever our station in life, whatever our present vocation, 
Each of us, whatever our, our present occupation, however we're participating in society, however we're tending our family, each of us is called to be better. God has something more in mind for each one of us, and that something more is what we draw near every time we come to the Holy Eucharist. See, this is the mistake that we make about, about work, especially in American society. We, we conflate work and vocation, right? That's the whole point of this homily, is your work is not your vocation, your vocation is not your work. They're related, but they're distinct. Keep them straight or you're going to get messed up. But the reason we tend to confuse it here in the States is because we confuse the work that we do every day with, with what God is doing ultimately in our lives, with our primary relationships, with, with, with our deepest longing, Right? And if, like, if your deepest longing is filing papers or something, there's something very wrong with you. <laughs> right? Most of the tasks that we do that make up most of our jobs, they're not intended to fulfill your deepest longing. Most of the tasks that I do at the worky part of my work in an office do not satisfy my deepest longings. Like spreadsheets don't get me up in the morning. Processing annulments don't make me happy when I go to bed. That's not how this is intended to work. The priest, the parish priest at least, is in a certain sense a stay-at-home dad. I don't have a regular job for your sake, and all the work that I do do is for your sake. Not in a paternalistic way, because I think you're all little kids and can't take care of yourself, but because fathers love their children. They sacrifice for their children. They suffer for their children. I remember as a boy so well, my own dad, working long, 16, 18-hour days, coming in after us kids had gone to bed, taking a shower because he was hot and gross from the shop, putting on his pajamas, and then coming in and kneeling down at our beds and saying our bedtime prayers over again. We were already asleep or half asleep, but I, could, I can remember waking up and seeing my dad kneeling at the side of my bed and saying the prayers that they taught us to pray. That was his vocation, not running the shop on the east side. He made friends that way. He helped put me through school that way. He, he supported his community that way. Apex oil didn't save his soul. Virgie... PJ and Colleen, we might stand a chance, at least a little. And the same is true for you. So, today, we as church, we work together to do the greatest and most important thing that we do, which is truly God's work and truly ours, if we will have it. This represents most perfectly what God is trying to do in us. It articulates most clearly what God wants all of our work to be about, our wills perfectly united with his. Turn over to his son who longs to remake us in his image and allow us to share in his work forever and here today.